Hey listeners, it's Keith from Evertrue. Evertrue is the end-to-end solution for insight, outreach, and analytics for higher ed advancement and stewardship teams around the world. Recently, we launched Evertrue Studios, Advancement's very first media hub, where subscribers have access to over 100 hours of free, on-demand original series and podcasts, all created with fundraisers in mind. Check us out at evertrue.com backslash studios. Hey, listeners, I'm Kim Naoni, and this is Mentorship Matters, a podcast that examines the current and future landscape of fundraising leaders and the power of inclusive mentorship and advancement. Today, it's my honor and privilege to speak with Edgar Gonzalez, Vice President for Advancement at Seattle University in beautiful Seattle, Washington. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yes, thanks. It's a pleasure. It's always a pleasure for us here at Mentorship Matters to have conversations with professionals in advancement like yourself who present a different perspective. And I've had a you know a, a different lived experience from the day they discovered they want to be a fundraiser or uh, you know work in philanthropy to where they are now. So I really appreciate having you here. Thank you. Thank you. It's, you know, it's interesting to have the opportunity to reflect given our busy schedules. It's not often that we get a chance to slow down and reflect on the last 20 years of a career and uh, grateful for the invitation. Absolutely. So as you know, as, as I mentioned before, I wanted to begin our conversation by asking you to share with our audience a bit about your background, who you are, where you're from, and how you ended up pursuing a career in advancement. Great. Uh, Well, let's start at the beginning. I was born in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and uh, was born and raised there. My family moved to the United States uh, in search of that elusive American dream uh, when I was nine years old. And we settled in the Pacific Northwest of all places, about as far as you can get from Buenos Aires in the United States. And grew up there, went to the University of Washington and needed a job. Uh, you know, I was, you know, immigrant family. We didn't have a lot of means. So I needed right. to work through college. And I picked up the student newspaper the summer before my freshman year and found a job at this something called the Student Calling Center. And that oh, was yes. my, that was my introduction into fundraising. So I was the one who called during dinner and inter- interrupted your dinner to ask you for a hundred bucks to support your alma mater. Um and I managed to actually enjoy that. And it was a flexible student job. So I did that for all four years of college and, you know, eventually got to manage the other students and it was a lot of fun. So I figured graduating college, why not give this a go in terms of a career? And I got a job, sort of entry-level job at the University of Washington at the business school. And really that exposed me to a lot of different areas of advancement. I was supporting annual giving and alumni engagement and major gifts. So I really got a chance to take a pretty good view at a big place, right? The University of Washington is a massive operation. Oh yeah, Uh, they do a great job there. Yeah, and and the business school is one of the biggest units there, right? So I had an opportunity to have a vantage point and a really sophisticated place to to learn. So the, the rest is history from there. I kind of fell in love with the engagement, the relationship building and the opportunity to support a mission. And, and education is a big part of, uh, we'll talk hopefully more about you know where, where the drive comes from, but it comes from providing access to education, right? I think education, we all do this because we believe that education is a, a huge driver in social mobility. Uh, it certainly was for my family. 
uh, higher education in this country really changed the tra trajectory of my families in one generation. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, you know, I too share that immigrant story. I moved here from Tanzania and Africa, except I moved here, you know, I, I was by myself. But I can tell you that for my family, education too resonates well because it was education that got my family from a life of, uh, you know, poverty to a life of uh, me of meaningful adventure, I like to call it, where we were able to accomplish our goals and and, and do all and do all those things. And so, as as I I happen to be a first generation American, and so when I was going through my education journey, I said to myself, you know, I hope that one day uh, my children will get to realize the privilege that we have in 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 being here. I'm grateful for all the the country has provided for me but if if it wasn't for education if it wasn't for higher education i went to the university of nebraska go big red if it wasn't for that i would not be where i am today and i would not have the opportunities that i've had today so it's education i mean we can't we can't talk enough about 100 100 yeah. i think it's um and nobody can take it away from you which isn't one of those cliches but uh it's one of those things where without it i i know for a fact i wouldn't be where i'm at like you Absolutely. So as you were coming up, who or what were the key influencers early in your life that impacted the person you became as a leader and professional? You know, early in my life, unsurprisingly, my parents were, were a huge influence. And of course, they they taught me many things. But, the you know, the three core things that I that I want to talk about are uh, obviously a work ethic, our core values and optimism. And, you know, optimism is an interesting one. I was talking about it with my father the other day. My parents had three kids in Argentina during one of the darkest times in the history of that country, which, you know, some may know as the Dirty War. And yes. it, was a, it was a military dictatorship. And they had three kids during that time. And that, to me, is the definition of optimism, right? Of knowing, Absolutely. Knowing that we can persevere and we can get through things. But sacrifice. They moved across the world so their kids could have an opportunity to get an education, to put their kids in a better situation than they had. So to me, that that influence early on was, and it, and it remains till this day, my parents are both still living, thankfully, and uh, I have an opportunity to thank them for all they've done, but also to wear soft-soled shoes because I know I'm standing on their shoulders. But, you know, being a young immigrant was not the easiest thing, and you have some experience, but it was easy to be grounded and to have some purpose. That immigrant story actually creates some purpose for you. And we we came here for a reason. I didn't come here to, my parents didn't move across the world so their kids could goof around. You know, we came here to get an education, no. to work hard. Uh, so I think a part of that has always stuck with me, but I had a teacher in middle school, right? And, and I had a good set of values and I had a, a, a kind of beginning to figure out who I was in middle school. And I had a teacher named David Vinson, uh, who's still teaching to this day. And he pushed me, right? He knew who I was. He could see me for who I was, but he also saw me trying to follow the trends and follow the wind and trying to go down a path that maybe wasn't the path that was the best one for me. So he pulled me into his classroom and he shut the door. And I, I'm not sure, I'm not going to say the swear word, but he said, quit trying so effing hard. And then he yeah. just shook me out of his out of the room and didn't say more. And for, once I got done giggling that my teacher said the F word, uh, I really began to internalize what he was talking about, <laughs> right? And it was really about knowing who I was and being true to myself and not 
following the trends. And I think that has really always stuck with me that that was the moment, that was a turning point for me in terms of having somebody see me and make a subtle suggestion or not so subtle suggestion that got me thinking. And I think that that was a turning point for me in terms of really figuring out how to live in my truth and be as authentic as I could be without trying to be somebody else or trying to fit into another mold, right? And again, as an as an immigrant, you're you're trying to figure out where you land, right? Do you assimilate? Mm -hmm. Do you over assimilate? Do you stay true to yourself? And I think it was an opportunity for me to find some balance with that, right? It made me aware at an early age that I needed to figure out how to be myself. Yeah, you know, you're right. I mean, anybody who's listening to this and has that immigrant experience, I don't care what part of the United States you're in, you came in and at some point early on, you feel like, man, I'm different. Like they're doing certain things. Like I remember first time I experienced Thanksgiving. Well, what is this? You know, like, you know, it was different. It was different from what I'm used to or what I was uh, acculturated with as a young person. And so, you know, oftentimes there's that urge to fit in because there's not a lot of people like you that encourage you to be you. So you're trying to be the mainstream, but yet that's not who you are. And so it takes those champions that you meet that may be like you or may not be like you. They're from different culture, ethnic background that you meet in your new community that encourage you to, you know, don't be like anybody else, be you. And oftentimes I tell people, you don't want to, you, you don't want to mess with an immigrant. You know why? Because you don't want to mess with somebody who came here from, uh, you know, away from their comfort zone and made a life for themselves in their families because the the journey that it takes to get there builds such a character that there's no amount of challenges you're going to, you know, find an advancement or whatever field you go to that can beat that. I mean, Absolutely. you can fire me 10 times. You can do this. You can play all the politics. You can, whatever you try. It does not rise to the level of the journey that it takes you and the courage that it takes the parents, the kids, everybody to leave everything that they know to get to where they are. And that's something that unless you've walked in those shoes, you just don't get. Definitely. Definitely. It's uh, that's why we talk about lived experience, right? That exactly. We, because unless you've lived it, it's really difficult to understand it in the same ways. Yeah, and, and as a leader in advancement and an institution that is, uh, you know, about equity, it's about inclusivity, it's about providing access to education, you know, that tends to give you a different lens because you see when somebody comes to talk to you about opportunities to provide scholarships for kids that are coming from overseas or kids that are coming from certain groups uh, that are underrepresented, you know, it's not about them trying to sell you because you say, I I I've lived it. I see where they're coming from. I've experienced the impact. And so I know why this is important, which is something that, 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 you know, not everybody can say that they have. No, the impact of, again, part of the reason that we do this work, that I do this work, is to create access to the educational opportunities. And having been a Pell Grant student and having been the recipient of scholarships and having 
needed that help to get through college, I can speak to that in such a different way than many other colleagues who haven't lived through those things. And, and that doesn't make me better or worse. It just makes it, it makes me me, right? It makes my story, uh, my story, and it makes hopefully the opportunity for somebody to connect with that story. Absolutely. And yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, it's not about being better. It's about the lived experience helps you connect with the plight of the students that you serve and be a strong advocate of helping them to realize their potential. So that is, that is key. So give us five key takeaways that you learned from those experiences. You've shared a couple here. Yeah. And it's about resilience, you know, it's about the lived experience. So what other sort of uh, experiences uh, and influences that you gained from, from from your life and how do you put them into practice as uh, you established your leadership uh, yeah. I, you know, path and professional path? I think in addition to what I've already said, there's there's a sense of of a care for others and a care for the common good that was instilled in me from a from a young age and it made me aware again being a a citizen matters right it's not you're not just on, on this in this world on your own doing your thing you are in in community you're in context and i think that being aware of that at a young age allowed me to really think about what it means to build a life that is as much as it is for me, but also for others and being in community and thinking about how my story is going to impact the stories of others, like other people have impacted my story. Uh, so I think that it's, you know, getting an early start on that sort of level of thinking is maybe not rare, but relatively, you know, under unknown, I think you're probably figuring out what you're going to wear to the dance and also thinking about, well, what's my, you know, what's my path in life and uh, what am I supposed to be doing? But the, the foundation is strong, right? So I think as, as we think about what I would want to instill on in my kids, what I am trying to instill into my kids is a really strong foundation of where everything can be centered. And yeah. that is hugely valuable. Absolutely. Very, very valuable. So switching gears to advancement, I'm sure when you were growing up, going to school, you didn't say, say mom, dad, I want to be a development professional. I want to be an advancement professional because that, you know, if, if they're like my parents, they say, what do you do? Like, well, what is, what is that? It's, it's not a real job. You're not an accountant, you're not a lawyer, you're not a doctor. <laughs> what is that? So how did you break into advancement and what were your first experiences like as a minority in a field that is frankly not diverse? Yeah. And I, I'm still trying to explain to my parents what I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny you say that. I mean, it, it took my dad 10 years after being in the field for him to understand. And that was after I took him to a football game. We had a suite and I was hosting some donors. And he got to participate and said, Oh, yeah, so it's like business development, you know. So yeah, yeah, you're you're helping to facilitate financial support for the institution. Oh, I get it now. I say it's been 10 years, man. I've been trying to tell you that I actually do work. This is work. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. No doubt. But well, as I mentioned, I started really early 
and I kind of, a lot of people say they fell backwards into this profession, but, you know, I got this job as a student and then figured out that it was interesting to me. So I kept going just to see if it would be something that would be worthy of a career or something that would turn itself into a career. And I think that the most important thing early on was really watching and learning, right? And uh, this is a podcast, so you can't see me, uh, listeners, but I present as a as a white man. I don't necessarily present as a Latino man, uh, even though I identify as one. And I think that that actually cost a, a tremendous amount of sort of different issues and situations to present themselves because mm -hmm. I was, you know, you could, you could read my name and you could make some assumptions about who I was, but then you, a lot of people read my name and met me or took the meeting and then said they were kind of pleasantly surprised about what I look like, which is offensive, right? Yes, absolutely. But in their mind, it wasn't at all, right? And the other part of that is that because of the way that I look, a lot of colleagues, uh, which is a predominantly white field, especially at the time, 20 plus years ago, kind of said, you know, they they thought and spoke freely and kind of really showed themselves in ways that maybe they wouldn't do so today because they just kind of assumed I was one of them, right? And I was just in that locker room talk or whatever you want to call it. And I got lumped into, so I had both of those. Well, you know, growing up, we certainly experienced more overt and direct racism. This was that interesting, really veiled uh, early in my career, really veiled kind of a charade of it. And so it taught me a lot, right? I learned to use it to my advantage eventually to be able to use my unearned privilege, right? My unearned skin privilege to really kick the door open and pull people up and uh, and be a, an ally and a mentor, but also to be in certain situations that a lot of folks wouldn't be in and have some influence in those conversations. So it, it was getting into the business was really both odd and, and really interesting from a sociological perspective because of my identity, right? My intersectionality <laughs> is mine. And I have had interesting opportunities and interesting experiences because of that. Now, it has now that I've reached a level in my profession and in my in my title, I suppose, I have a different platform and I have a different opportunity to talk about it in different ways. It wasn't as easily talked about 20 plus years ago. It wasn't as easy to be vulnerable in those kind of conversations as it has been more lately. But so it was I got into it that way and I used it as much as I could and educated as many people as I felt comfortable educating because I sometimes you don't want to suffer fools and sometimes you're okay saying, hey, yeah. let me tell you something. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, no, so, so that so that's interesting. I mean, uh, you know, so as a leader, you know, oftentimes authenticity in the field we're in is not uh it's not a cool thing to do. It's not a cool thing to be authentic, to be vulnerable. And and I, you know, I look at vulnerability as being real. You know, I mean being true to who you are and in sharing your experiences, your lived experiences to help your organization, your team understand that it's okay to be who you are and to bring your true self to work because we, after all, represent students who are currently here, those who are alumni who left the uh, the, the university in the communities that we serve. And, uh, you know, you're in Seattle Seattle is a very diverse community. It's a it's a very rich community in terms of culture. So any institution that plays in that arena, they have to embrace authenticity because you can't be monolithic. That is not gonna 
you know, gonna gonna match well with the community that you're in. And so for leaders, from our perspective, you know, oftentimes, especially those leaders uh, from underrepresented groups, underrepresented uh, individuals, there is an expectation that you can't be the real you. Yeah. But your team is looking at you to be the real you because they know that you being one of the few people that is, uh, you know, has the privilege that you have, you have the ability to open the doors for others and inspire others that see you as somebody they can aspire to be. Yeah. And I think it's authenticity is as much about being who you are and also the vulnerability to be not be who you're not. Right. And I think right. that a lot of times we, you know, we, there's been a lot of conversation about code switching lately and everybody who is in a, you know, underrepresented group is code switching at work. There, there's just no ifs, ands, or buts for the most part. And that's exhausting, right? So a lot of times you get home and you're just exhausted because you've been somebody that you really fully aren't, or mm -hmm. you've been doing the opposite, right? You've been kind of, you, you're either hiding parts of yourself or you're accentuating parts of yourself that aren't really you. And I think that's one of those things where as leaders, we have to model the behavior. And again, I'm in a position right now where I can do those things. And earlier in my career, I wasn't. And I'm also a man, right? Mm -hmm. Which is a whole different thing in the workplace. So I, again, some of that unearned privilege or that opportunity to, um, in this society at least, right? As a man, you have a huge different approach to work and, and right. rather approach you differently at work. But I think that we have to model that behavior. And one of the things I've learned over the years and through, through experience is that it starts at the top, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody's looking at the leadership to say, how are they reacting to certain situations or how are they uh, showing up in, in certain, you know, meetings and certain opportunities to really showcase who they are. And if they're not, then it signals to everybody else that they can't either. So I think one of the things that's really important for leaders, and I've learned this through mentors and through watching others and learning from others, is that you have to do that as a leader. There's no gray area there. I think you have to shape the culture in a way. Everybody has a role to play in culture, but you get, you get to shape it in some ways. And that's a huge responsibility. It is. It is. But I, as I often say to folks who want to aspire to be leaders, that leadership is responsibility. It's responsibility for the lives of those that you uh, lead and uh, their careers and their families and the organization. And so if you want to assume those responsibilities, then so be it. But don't go into it thinking that it's all about the title, the office, the perks that come with that because uh, that's not about it. And the institution depends on you to make the right decisions and to do the right things by your team. Even though you may fail at times, it happens. You learn from those. But if you're going at it with the right intentions, with the right vision and being focused on people and what you need to do, everything is going to work out. But you just have to go into it with the right conviction and the right mindset about what leadership is about, which uh, leads me to, you know, the whole concept of the why. I was introduced to it years ago, you know, when I was listening to uh, Simon Sinek's, uh, right. uh, you know, right. audiobook. And since I've been a subscriber to his podcast, because uh, he always has some good content. And so 
as you think about your why, what's your why in this field? In the, you talked a little bit about it earlier on in terms of uh, access, paying back and, and those kind of things. But what is your why and how does it manifest itself in your leadership? That's a, that's a great question. And I love Simon's book. I actually read the book and it's probably sitting on a bookshelf here somewhere. But I think that if I had to boil it down, I'd have to steal somebody else's words. I'll tell you, service is a big part of it. I think yep. service to the community, service to my organization, to my team, to my family. Uh, but it was Peter Gomes at Harvard. He, is, he was in the School of Theology at, at Harvard, and he articulated it for me. So I'll just use his words, which- Let's go. By paraphrasing, uh, I, want to do, I want to be a small part of something great that does good in the world. That is my why right? That's my purpose. I want to, I want to do good in the world while I'm here. And I get up every morning with that as my purpose. How do I leave it better than I found it? And that, you know, is a big, hairy, audacious thing. But I think that we can do that in so many small ways every single day, right? Whether it's raising a hundred million dollar gift to transform the lives of many students, or whether it's a kind word to a colleague who's having a bad day, all of those things transform the world for the better. And if we can put our head on our pillow every night and say, here are the things I did today that helped do something good. Uh, we're doing okay. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting to me because oftentimes you're talking to leaders uh, in advancement and, you know, it's about the bottom line too. Well, it's about the bottom line. You know, we gotta, we gotta meet our goal. We gotta do this. We gotta do that. We gotta do that. And I say, well, so who's supposed to achieve that goal? People. And 100%. why are you, wanting to achieve that goal because you want to meet the mission of the institution that in the end impacts people. So the beginning on the end of this is people. Okay. It's about making the place better than we founded the institution, the community at large, the country, the globe, we're educating students from all over the place. And we each have a chance to, help our teams have a good day by the decisions that we make in terms of budgets, in terms of whatever, right? Because, yeah. you you know, uh, I remember years ago, I worked in an institution where we had to plan for COVID. And so, uh, you know, you get that, that, uh, that email that you have to plan for worst case scenario and <laughs> least worst case scenario. And each one of those involved people because that's usually the most expensive, you know, item on in your budget line. And so one of the things that was really great about one of my colleagues, you know, who was a CFO was that she always thought about and advised us to never spend every penny. If you you get a budget allocation, let's always have a cushion because worst case scenario, we focus on saving and protecting the core of what we have to do. And guess what? When that happened, other units had to eliminate positions, which impacted people's lives in the time when we did not need, you know, that was not, that was the last thing you want to do to anybody, right. okay, is right. take away income. But we were able to not do that because we as leaders made the right informed decision, understanding that what we do is about our team. And it's about, you know, uh, doing the right thing for the team that in turn will inform the productivity and, you know, the results that we achieve. Absolutely. I mean, we, 
again, it goes back to being centered on the right things, right? And yeah, we can talk about being centered on dollars raised. We can talk about being centered on metrics. We can talk about being centered on many things. But if you're not centered on people, you're not going to go very far in this business. You know, I had a mentor. I have a mentor uh, named Dondi Cup, who is the senior vice president at Seattle Children's Hospital right now. And when I first got, he gave me my first major gift officer job, basically without any experience. He he hired me and said, "Let's was do it." This. Was it back at App State? Uh, that was at UW at the College of Arts and Sciences. Uh. And he used to say when I was starting out, he said, yeah, a lot of people think this business, like we talked about, is about titles or you get to wine and dine people, you get to schmooze, you get to go to parties. And he said, you can't like people in this business. You have to love people. It's not enough to like people. And because you, ha you have to love people and you have to love the people you work with. You have to love the donors that you work with and you have to love the out the people who are going to benefit from the outcomes to be really successful in this business and to do it for a long time. And I, I always go back to that because it's uh, it's a little weird to say to, you know, you love people that you work with because you're not always going to be in that situation. But I think um, I found my way into loving people more through this work. You have to. I mean, it's uh, b because oftentimes, you know, life happens. And, you know, I've, I've often said to people that when I make decisions, I think about, how am I impacting that person's family? How am I impacting that person's future? Because it's about that. At the end of the day, it's about that. And if we're not focusing on that, then we're not doing our job as leaders. I mean, you you cannot make, you know, willy-nilly decisions without thinking about, you know, I care about that person. What message are you going to send when your team member has a, you know, a chronic illness? something that may lead to death and you're uh, not taking the measures that will allow them to remain employed to have health care because unfortunately in our country that's how you do it yeah. and you say oh no well go on uh, fmla you won't get paid you won't get this you won't get that but you still have a job knowing that that's going to lead them to financial ruin well you're telegraphing to the rest of the team is that you're nothing but a line item yep. and that's your value to the organization. So who's going to want to work for you? Who's going to want to be part of your mission? And you're going to look like a hypocrite when you're talking about, we care about people, we're about mission, we're about this. And that's Oh, really? You do. We, <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? This is, it's, it's critical to think about those things. It is. And it's important because in the long run, if you are going to continue to be a leader in this business, it, you know, we're not a very big business, right? People will know. And I think that word gets out fast in our business and you have to have a brand, so to speak, right? A leadership, a personal leadership brand. I talk about this a lot at work about what's your, what's your leadership brand as a person, because that eventually if you continue to do things like you've just described, that brand gets tarnished uh, and it becomes impossible, right? To to keep people on your team, to get people to want to come work with you, uh, to build things together. So I think it's really important to me when I when I when I interview for a job or when I interview anybody for a job, it's important that you get to know who that person is and that you choose to work with that person, right? I I got I was privileged enough to in this role at Seattle University. 
uh, to work with the president who I really admire and wanna, wanted to work with. I chose this Shahid, they obviously chose me, but I also chose them to come work here under this leadership. And I think that really matters, right? As you think about taking care of people, you have to exude that. You have to create an environment in which people understand and believe that and don't just see it as lip service. And I think that comes with a lot of at-bats, right? You got to keep proving yourself over and over again. Over and over, over and over. So we work in a world where meeting goals can make or break careers, as we talked about. You know, uh, you know, a lot of folks in our industry over the years, you know, it's been about goals, 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 goals. Yeah, understandable because we're in, we're in the business of impacting lives, so we got to keep in mind the price. But I often argue that it's not just about the numbers, as you've talked about. Uh, it's about the mission of the institution, which in turn will inspire transformational giving. You know, what are your thoughts about the importance of mission and purpose and advancement versus just a focus on exceeding goals? Because, I mean, we've talked about it here. It's, you know, why are we raising hundreds of millions of dollars? Because we either want to shape the future of the global society through education, attainment. We want to drive economic uh, development in the communities that we serve. And we want to be global citizens that address those needs that may not mean, you know, a great ROI from a measurable perspective to an institution, but do a greater good. We're yeah. in a business of doing good. So what are your thoughts about that? You know, I think it's it's in the definition of our profession, right? If you think about most of our titles now have shifted to advancement. And advancement mm -hmm. means that's the mission. That's it, right? And we do yeah. that in many ways, right? We do it through alumni engagement, through marketing, through storytelling. We do it in many ways. But at the end of the day, we're advancing the mission. And yes, we have goals and metrics. And those help us track progress. Those are tools. I don't, there's a lot of folks who I've, I've worked uh, with fundraisers who come to me at the end of the quarter and say, well, I met my metrics. It's like, but you didn't move the needle, right? You just check yeah. the box. Yeah. So the job isn't metrics and it isn't the goal. Is, you know, we have goals, we have metrics, we track our progress, uh, but those are just tools in helping us advance the mission. And I think we have, you know, one of the things that's really challenging in, in the world that we live in, as you described it, is we have, we work with teams of people and those mm -hmm. people are whole people. It's not just, their work selves that we work with, right? We work with their families and we work with their health and we right. work and they have needs. And we have, so as we as leaders have to manage people's needs and we have to balance that with our business needs, right? Mm -hmm. Our president has expectations of what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. So my job as a leader in this business is to be in the middle of the Venn diagram between our business needs and our people's needs and not to over-index to either one mm -hmm. because it gets us into trouble. And you know, during the pandemic, we needed to, to over-index to people's needs. We needed to really think about, people were dying all over the world. We needed to really index to say, take care of yourselves. We're going to be okay. The work will still be here. And we figured out that we could work remotely and we could work in a hybrid schedule and we could be more flexible to people's needs. But we can't live there, right? We have to come back to the middle and say, okay, well, we also have these business needs. And our jobs are to, again, live in that middle of that Venn diagram and to inspire people, right? To raise their right. sight internally and externally, uh, to create partnerships that will advance the mission of the university. And that is, we are that connective tissue 
between the inside of the university and our deans and our faculties and our, our staff and our donors and the community who wants to support this work. And I think we have to take that very seriously, but also it's, we're not doing brain surgery, right? No, no. People. So we have to take it with a little bit of looseness and say, yeah, metrics and goals are important, but we're at, we're out there advancing the mission by doing really fun, meaningful work. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It, if you're not having fun, you're doing the wrong thing. You know, uh, I, I was listening to John Maxwell earlier. He talked about switching from a goal orientation to a growth orientation as leaders and, and, you know, focusing on, on goals. Oftentimes you say, I want to be, I want to raise $10 million in a year. Okay, great. But if you're thinking about growth, he talked about growth means how far can I go? How far can I go to advance the mission of this organization? How far can I go to be the best leader that I can be in helping my people realize their potential, my organization realize its potential? Because that's infinite. You know, growth is infinite. Whether you've been 20 years, you've been 10 years. And so, you know, back to what we're talking about, if you have that orientation, the numbers will come. The numbers will come because that's a mission-focused orientation. They will always come. And and you have to trust that, right? And I think many people don't. And And I've worked in organizations where people are so, so worried about this or that or the other. And it's like, just focus on the, if you spend your time on the right things, right? How do we spend our time? That is to me, the biggest coaching piece for, for young fundraisers is how are you spending your time? Do an audit of your time. And if mm-hmm. you're spending time on the right things and having the most kind of focused activity to further the mission of the institution, the numbers will come. They, they yep. will all always be there. And, you know, the data is one half of the story. So when, when we do annual performance reviews, everybody's freaking out about getting the contact reports in and doing all the things. And what I always tell people is data tells me half the story and you tell me the other half, right? I need yep. peace about what happened because the data, if I go on data alone, it's probably going to be misleading mm-hmm. how you spent your time. And uh, it's really important for everyone to know, and everybody on my team is tired of hearing me say it, but you know, every story has three sides, right? It's your side, my side, and the truth. Exactly. Somewhere in the middle. The, somewhere in the middle, there's a the truth. <laughs> I want to get at the truth. So I need all the data points I can get. Yeah. So as you think about, you know, building organizations, of course, you know, in your role, uh, you know, as a vice president, uh, you get to you know, have the privilege of putting together a team and a team that, you know, hopefully will deliver uh, uh, to to the mission of the institution. And so as you think about that, we're talking about being mission-driven. We're talking about having the right mindset. How does one go about building such an organization? Because, you know, again, many folks get into a VP role and president comes and says, we need to raise X. And they feel such a privilege in being in that role that they don't feel comfortable and say, you know, I know we want to do this. However, I can do this. But here's how I can do this in a sustainable way that is going to ensure that we're not just raising money for now, but we are supporting the mission of this institution for years to come. That is a tough thing for most people to do because 
they're thinking of it from a short-term perspective. I'm going to be here maybe X amount of time. Again, talking about a goal focus with a goal focus. That's right. No, I, I, and I'm privileged that my boss, the president of Seattle University, uh, really fully understands that. And he hired me under the guise of, I want you to build a sustainable fundraising operation for Seattle University. He didn't say, I want you to go out and swing for home runs every time. He said, I want you to build something. And I know it's going to take time, which to me was the biggest gift he could have given me, right? Which was the leeway to say, how do we build this? What do we have? What are, what are our existing strengths? And what are the opportunities that we have that we can take on? And I will tell you that the most important thing that I've learned in the two years or just under two years that I've been at Seattle University is that culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? Peter, oh, Drucker, yeah. Peter Drucker reminded us of that. So as you build a team, as I'm building a team, we can build a lot of fancy and aspirational goals and strategies and, uh, you know, but without a strong team that is bought into a shared vision and a shared culture, you're going nowhere. Nowhere. Going nowhere fast, right? And if, if you can create as a leader, create a structure and incentives and all of the things that make it for a strong culture and everybody buys into that, right? And buying in is you're here, <coughs> excuse me, uh, you're here and you are looking at this new approach or we're bringing people in, right? We're hiring for vacancies with a different mindset, with a different mm -hmm. approach to the work. So I think that you have to look at both of those as a leader in terms of who are the people that are on the team right now that are going to be your champions for this and who are the people that maybe have to come from the outside. Uh, but without that, it'll be immensely difficult to succeed. So that's my approach to building team is building a, a core group of folks, you know, and I've worked in cultures that are fiercely competitive. It's like close the gifts, close the gifts, close the gifts, yep. be any, and that is toxic, right? Because people will step on each other. They will cut each other's throats just to close that gift before somebody else does. And often that harms the relationship with the donor and at least the table because you're going too fast, right? Mm -hmm. And it forces the issue a little too much, right? So if we can focus on relationships, we can focus on people, we can build a team with a foundation of trust that the numbers will be there if we're doing the right things and we're spending our time in the right ways. We can celebrate the wins. We can nurture good habits. Everybody supports and cares for each other. That's, that to me, the winning combination. It is. And, you know, I mean, you, you just alluded to, I mean, we see it a lot. In, in in the industry that uh, you know it's you know the the short term focus. How many campaigns have you heard of where you know somebody finished a record campaign, a billion, two billion, three, seven, you name it, and then they're all putting pressure on their teams to go and find new donors, you know, <laughs> sort of to you know to to fill the pi to fill the pipeline because they got a reset. And what does that do? Look at the attrition rate. People burn out and move on because on one hand, we're supposed to be thinking about the long-term viability of an institution and the long-term in terms of fundraising. But that churn is one of the reasons why we have a very, very high attrition rate in institutional investment. And how many conferences do you go to? And the main topic of discussion and leadership is, man, how what can we do to keep people excited and have a long-term career? in our institution. He said, hmm, the same thing we talked about last year that you have not implemented yeah. because you go back and you forget that, yes, short-term wins are good, but long-term wins are great. 
and in the best interest of the institution. Because after all, your uh, responsibility should be to do the right thing for the institution while you're there so and, that you leave the institution better than you found it. Yeah, I think we both said this the exact same thing at the exact same time there, right? You got to leave it better than you found it. Yeah. And that is what leadership is, right? Leadership isn't closing the big gift, posing for the photo, uh, having the authority. I think leadership is that sustained progress. That's Absolutely. that's good leaders, that sustained progress that, that's been nurtured and cared for and paid attention to, right? Culture doesn't just happen within teams. As I said before, everybody has a role to play in culture, but it has to be, uh, there's gotta be a seed corn in there and it, it's, it's gotta be nurtured and cared for and, and paid attention to on a regular basis. Absolutely. So if you were to talk to Edgar, the young professional early in his career, what advice would you give him about the journey to leadership and advancement? Oh man. Uh, well, I'll tell you this. I was very, very, I am very, very fortunate to have had some great mentors and friends early in my career. Right. And, and I'll name a few because I, I talked about Dondi cup. Sissy Bouchard was the first person to ever hire me in this business. And she's still uh, in the business at Marquette university, Greg Sheridan, Connie Kravis, uh, just these wonderful folks who not only mentored me, but sponsored me. And I want to talk a little bit about mentorship and sponsorship as different. Yes. And I think that that is, an, it, you know, we can go around, go about life and have a lot of folks who give us advice or, or kind of mentor us or take us under their wing. But there are a few people who are going to talk about you in a room you're not in and mm -hmm. for up in for opportunities and things like that. So I think that sponsorship is also a huge part of and especially in our profession, and especially for underrepresented folks in our in our business, we see a lot of folk. You know, we talk about we need more diverse teams, or we need blah blah blah, and we have a tremendous amount of diversity in early career positions. Mm -hmm. Get to the to the tops of organizations, you see barely any, right? So what's happening in the middle? Why are folks falling out of the of the pipeline in the middle? And we have a leaky pipeline to leadership from people with diverse lived experiences, and we have to fix that leak in the pipeline, as opposed to just adding more kind of people on the back end. And I think sponsorship is a huge part of that. We have to continue to, and not only mentor, but sponsor. But if I had to tell young Edgar something, I would, I would say, nurture the relationships with, you know, you start again, you start with mentors and they eventually turn into sponsors because, and that requires work. It, right. it doesn't happen you have to nurture those relationships. You have to be the one that drives in some cases because you're young, you're you know early in your career, you think you know everything. Mm -hmm. and, right? and I think understanding that you don't know what you don't know is a huge piece of self-awareness. And then I would tell young Edgar to pace himself, right? There's the career is long and there's a lot, you don't know everything right away. And I think that you have to spend a lot of time learning. We talk about growth mindset. You have to be a lifelong learner and you have to expose yourself to everything and gain the knowledge, right? That's phase one of the career is you gain the right. knowledge, expose yourself to lots of things, and then you experience it. You execute based on that knowledge and you begin to have some success. And then if you're lucky enough, you turn that into wisdom, right? Later in your career. So I think that it's a, it's a marathon and pacing yourself is really important. And when we're young, we're impatient and we want to kind of run the shop. And if I had run a shop 20 years ago, 
I would have made it. So many mistakes. <laughs> yeah, you know, sometimes the grass is not greener, right? You know, you think the grass is greener, you go in and say, oh, I didn't realize we had all these weeds that I had to pull and, and all that. And But some people say, you know, it's it's all about uh, drinking from a fire hose. But I think, a as you're alluding to, a strategic uh, sort of growth in 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 managing yourself is uh is is a good thing, and so uh you know you 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 give a shout out to a few people that have been important to you as mentors and as we talk about here in uh, mentorship matters it's all about mentorship. So uh if if you were to summarize why those individuals that mentored you how I, I rather how have they impacted you in your outlook as a leader. In several ways, and some are hard to vocalize, but I will tell you that one of the most important aspects, especially as having lived the life that I've lived, the most important thing that these folks have provided to me is seeing me right. and caring for me in a way that they didn't have to. And I think that that's one of those things that comes with, I always talk about mentorship doesn't work unless you actually care about the other person. Uh, it is, it's not transactional. It doesn't work mm -hmm. if it's transactional. You have to know their dog's name and their kid's names and be, be involved that way. And I think every relationship that I've had that has gone from mentorship to friendship uh, has been really impactful to me because it because it's caring and it's yeah. really a purpose and about, and it's two way, it's a two way street. It's not, I'm not just extracting things or they're not just extracting things from the other person. But being seen is one of the most uh, every human being needs to be seen. Mm -hmm. You, there's no replacing that. Nah, nah, that's that you couldn't have said a truer word. So, uh, my key takeaways here at, you know, as we, uh, wrap up mentorship matters, sponsorship matters. The words of those who speak in a room when you're not there may be the words that open up your future into yep. leadership, into opportunities that otherwise may not have happened, especially for underrepresented uh, professionals. And I've experienced that. I have my role that I have today because somebody else spoke a word about me without me being there. And my career has been influenced by that because I've had, uh, you know, uh, a few firsts, just like you have, the first of this, the first of that. And throughout the journey, I'm very grateful to those who believe in me, but I also proactively try to invest in others and helping others realize their potential and uh, speaking on their behalf, because I think part of our role as leaders is to chart the path for others who share lived experiences that we do to ensure that they are successful in realizing their dreams and that residual will happen. Somebody else, they will do the same thing to the others and for others, rather. And the next thing you know, we'll ensure that our institutions have a strong pipeline of future leaders with the lived experience of underrepresented individuals and the organizations that represent the communities that we serve. And so I really appreciate this uh Opportunity to visit with you today, Edgar. This has been a great conversation. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. And uh, I hope to see you soon. Absolutely. Well, there you have it, folks. I'm Kim Naoni. Thanks for tuning in to Mentorship Matters. See you soon and we'll see you.